How much debt do you reckon the average 18-year-old has? Everyone wants the new shoes, everyone wants the coolest makeup and stuff and you're in school, it's not like you've got cash flow coming in all the time. Like, it's easier just to click and get what you want, you know, you could show it off and that sort of thing. Rose is talking about Afterpay, the app that lets you make a purchase and pay it off in four instalments. Rose isn't her real name, by the way. When I first did it, like, I like didn't think it was going to be as bad as it was. Like, it didn't get, never got that bad. But I was like, nah, I'll be all right. I'll just buy a little shoe here and a little thing here just to help to get between, you know, my paycheck because I'm working minimum wage as a waitress. So she's 18. She has access to an app on her phone that's kind of like a credit card, but technically not a credit card. What could possibly go wrong? Well, one thing, COVID happened and then I stopped having a job. So, you know, you just, I never took into account what could always happen. Like, you never know. And I didn't really prepare for that either. And I know a lot of people didn't. And it could be not even COVID, but it could be anything. Like, you know, you just lose your job or, you know, anything. Yeah. So let's go back to that. You started using Afterpay. Mm. What kind of stuff were you buying on Afterpay? Um, Like I said, maybe like a dress for the weekend out or something like that originally. And then... I think it went up to maybe like, I think I put an Apple Watch on Afterpay originally, like way at the start, and I was paying that off. But that was probably the biggest expense that I did. Rose racked up a $1,500 debt, which doesn't sound like much. But let's remember that when this happened, she was still in high school. Did she really grasp what she was getting into? Did she even think of it as a debt? I think there was that little voice in the back of my head that was like, well, like, do you need it sort of thing as well? And this isn't your money straight away. Um, Yeah, like it was in the back of my head, but I kind of just waited up and was like, oh, it's only a little bit of money. Like it will be all right. I'll be able to cover up the cost if I need to sort of thing. But everyone else was doing sort of thing. Like, like we said, a bit of pressure around like peer pressure sort of thing. Not pressure. No one told me to do it, but yeah. But you felt like you wanted to have similar items that were fashion items or other things that your friends had. Yeah, or even things just to help me out. Like if I needed like something for a sport, like I don't know, I might need a new pair of football boots and like they're like $200 or a new pair of joggers or something like that. I'd always do that as well. Like just it's from that stage where you're not with mum and dad paying everything anymore and I'm not working a full-time job with big income. It's just kind of like I want a couple things that I want and this is how I could get it. They cut me off like at a certain point and said start paying it back. But like I said, COVID happened and I didn't have a job and like I kept lapsing on payments. So now like I can't completely get an account back. So you have no account now? No, I can't go. Like there's an account there and like it can go on because it's like, I don't know, you have to keep it there for history or something. But it can't be used. Like I can't go buy it. It's frozen. Yeah, it's frozen. Yeah. And how did you feel when they froze it? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I ended up getting zip anyway, but I learned a lot from it. I was like, all right, well, this don't be, don't fall into the same mistakes you did last time. I might use it for an emergency thing, but now it's not, it wasn't shoes and dresses like it was before. It's now like I might go get, my partner needed a laptop. So I, we had to go and put a laptop on zip sort of thing. Different. Yeah. For like her education. So what's going through your mind right now? Did Rose bring it on herself? Is she foolish to have been blocked from Afterpay only to open an account with its competitor, ZipPay? Or is this simply generational? If I think back, my first experience with debt was lay-by. Remember that? 
You'd take your much-desired purchase to the back desk in a department store where they'd take your details and a bit of cash, then put the item on a shelf only to be handed over once it's fully paid off. Later, I got a loan to buy a car and I remember going into the bank with my deposit and a bunch of pay slips and my dad had to be a guarantor to buy my little red Corolla for $8,000. But if you're the same age as the Apple iPhone and you grew up with a lot of digital milestones, it makes sense that your first experience with debt would be as easy as downloading an app. Afterpay is a bit of a revolution. Um, simply put, it's, uh, it's a digital, user-friendly way to pay for stuff. And, and the elegance of Afterpay is that instead of paying for something up front, like a pair of jeans for $100, you can break up the price into four equal installments over six weeks, so $25 every two weeks. Uh, and you also don't have to pay any interest. So it's completely free for you. That's Jonathan Shapiro. He's a senior reporter at the Australian Financial Review. He's also the co-author, along with James Ayres, of a book called Buy Now, Pay Later, The Extraordinary Story of Afterpay. This is Seriously Social. I'm Ginger Gorman. And in the pod today, what is debt to today's youth? Is there good debt and bad debt? And with the introduction of apps like Afterpay and its many competitors... Has debt become a game that's easy to begin and nearly impossible to end? We'll come back to Afterpay in just a moment, but first... Steve Threadgold, a sociologist at the University of Newcastle, has been looking at the generational divide when it comes to debt. Okay, so the main reason that we, in youth studies, try and do research collaboratively with young people is that, for the most part, young people are talked at and about and to, but rarely, rarely talked with. They, there's a whole bunch of kind of political and media you know, talk about young people and their lives and their responsibilities and their, more often not their failings. Um, but really, young people don't get an opportunity to speak too much themselves. So youth studies kind of starts with a concern to kind of represent the lives of young people realistically rather than in the ways that they're stereotyped and scapegoated um, in public discourse. So, you know, in terms of those kind of moral panics about, you know, youth cultures, they're always like, you know, Marilyn Manson's going to make your kids kill people and, um, you know, all the more economic stuff, you know, the classic one is the, you know, young people eat too many avocados so they can't buy a house. It's <laughs> all, those kind of, all those kind of misnomers that actually seem to blame the actions of young people for wide social problems that they actually have very little social control, uh, very little, sorry, individual control over. Um, most of the things that, like, talking about young people can't buy houses because they eat too many avocados and toast is absurd when the prices of houses are going up $1,000 a day in Sydney at the moment. Um, if you had one less $22 avocado plate a week, it would take you something like 19 years to save the deposit rather than 21. Or You know, that's not quite accurate. It's probably 16 and 19 or something. But, like, it's just an absurd way of thinking about it. So we, we want to give young people a voice um, and so we try and... Um, include 
you know, we, we talk with them more than at them or, or about them as much as we can. It sounds like what you're saying, Steve, is that by not talking with young people, by talking at them, it's effectively a stigmatising discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I hear, you know, often boomer but increasingly Gen X aged people in the media and politics or whatever talk about young people, sometimes I wonder if they've ever met one. <laughs> other, other, other than their own kind of maybe immediate family, which is, you know, often very indicative of the biases they have. So the stereotyping and complete almost willful misrepresentation and misunderstanding of what young people face as they, you know, going through adolescence, but more so from a sociological level, you know, having to kind of deal with education systems and then labour markets that are increasingly precarious and have changed in all kinds of ways that it's actually very hard for them to set themselves up financially unless you're already kind of coming from relative privilege. Young people are constantly blamed for making the wrong choices or not making choices that actually don't exist, right? So a lot of the things that, like, the expectations of young people today to kind of leave school, get a, a secure job and, you know, earn a hundred grand a year and you know, be able to buy a house and then get married and have kids by the late 20s. It's just completely unrealistic. It's actually the kind of normal state of previous generations' adulthoods that today really look like privilege. Steve has recently completed research on young people between the ages of 18 to 30 who have incurred various forms of debt. But it's actually a topic that comes with a lot of baggage and that has presented Steve and his team with some challenges. What we've hoped to do in this project is talk to people from relatively lower income backgrounds that had had some kind of experience with problem debt. What we've found, though, in terms of recruiting people, that it was actually really difficult to do that. And there's a few reasons for that, I would say. Firstly, I think whenever we start talking about debt, we start talking about morals. And there's a lot of shame and guilt about being in debt. So what did they find when it comes to young people and debt? Well, for one thing, they noticed that debt for young people is perceived as ubiquitous. There's an expectation, essentially, as young people move from high school to higher education, where they move from living at home with mum and dad and now, you know, getting a place in the real world, getting their own modes of transport, being able to travel, all these kind of things mean that debt is basically just a common sense thing that you have to engage with and you have to be in. What we do find, though, is that our respondents had different categorizations of debt. Very quickly, we could see that different kinds of debt were seen as good and bad debts. Good debts are kind of future-oriented debts as a way of kind of improving yourself or moving towards a goal or something like that. So something like a hex debt is seen as a good debt because it's seen as an investment in yourself to be able to kind of get the career and that kind of thing. Something like a mortgage, it's a kind of almost aspirational debt. I'd like to have a mortgage one day. Kind of means that you have to kind of get all that job stuff and that sorted out as well. So those kind of things are kind of seen as good debts because they're future-oriented in terms of making a better self. When it comes to kind of more bad debts, it's definitely the more short-term consumer-oriented things that our young people talked about. And this was particularly around things like afterpay, you know, buy now, pay later services. There was a definitely a moral, a moralism really came out when talking about these kind of short-term, more consumer-oriented debts. Here's Jonathan Shapiro again. 
it just popped up out of nowhere. And if you were shopping on a website and you saw the Afterpay button, you could you could use it there and there. You know, a few little things that you needed to put in, a few details about yourself, and um, you know, it, it almost you didn't break stride on your on the way to the checkout and all of this. And you not only that. To use the example of $100, you, you only had to pay $25. So it's only $25 leaving your account and you weren't paying any interest. So the speed and ease of use, the fact that you didn't have to pay for the goods up front, yeah, and the user experience of it all, all just made it very easy to use and yeah, kind of fostered that mass take-up. In some of your reporting, Jonathan, you've described the attractiveness of Afterpay as shedding guilt. What did you mean by that? We and others have tried to understand the virality of Afterpay. And I think a lot of finance people looked at it very simplistically and logically and said, this is allowing a college girl that didn't have $100 that wanted something, that pair of jeans for $100 to buy it. And Afterpay gave them the money they didn't have. But I think that only probably accounts for some of the attraction of Afterpay. I think beyond that, it was that breaking up the payment, you know, into those four equal payments that made you less guilty and helped you overcome a barrier that otherwise might have prevented you from buying something or encouraged you to buy more. And it doesn't have the same feeling, it seems to me, as a credit card where you know that you're going to get lumbered with a debt. Mm. It doesn't feel like debt in the same way. Uh, the comparison to credit cards is very, very interesting and nuanced. So, I mean, a lot again, the logical finance people that were looking at Afterpay as a company and its product, they were they were saying, why would you use Afterpay? You can just use your credit card. And so long as you pay your credit card off on time, you know, you've got your time to pay your credit card, there really is no benefit. The credit card's doing the same thing. It's giving you the full payment up, you know, it's funding your your purchase. But I think I think this is where I'd probably give some Afterpay users like the credit, sorry to use a pun, <laughs> but um, with the credit card, I think they've seen their parents and their friends and then maybe their older cousins get caught up in credit card debt. And there's absolutely no doubt that credit cards, there is a trap element to credit cards. So, you know, if you if you fall behind on your payments, you just have to make a small payment, uh, you know, to, to satisfy the credit card company uh, or to satisfy the bank that's issued to you the credit card. But you can get into this trap and that debt can build up and you do get charged interest. It revolves and it, it can become a real burden. So Afterpay will cut you off if you, you keep missing your payments. Whereas there's absolutely no doubt that credit cards, they win when you get stuck in a debt trap. Whereas Afterpay, they just need you to keep transacting. You know, They want good customers to continuously transact and make the payments. Steve Threadgold said that the participants in his study were confused as to whether or not the money they owed on Afterpay and other pay later apps was really a form of debt. Many of our respondents felt like, you know, they're using their own money in a way, so it's not a debt. But of course, if you don't make a repayment, you get like a fine, like a, a fee. They talk about how this feels a lot different than actually going into debt and having to repay a credit card loan. So we have some really, what I think is really fascinating distinctions being made between the feeling of being in debt between these different platforms. And, and this is definitely manifests through their orientation towards like the digital realm and the kind of the institutional bank, you know, bank manager going into a place and dealing with people. Is it that they see a debt that you would get from a bank as a real debt in inverted commas, but they don't see a debt that you click on, which is afterpay as a inverted commas real debt? 
Yeah, this with our, our respondents, there was definitely different orientations towards that. But yeah, it feels differently in the sense that it's just easier to access for a start. Like I remember when I had to get my first car loan, I, had, I wore a suit to the bank in the <laughs> 90s, right? I had to go with my, and my, my dad came and like, you know, and all this kind of thing. So that kind of thing is gone. The access to this now completely is, happens, you know, online. It removes the kind of dealing with actual people, which then also removes the kind of possibilities of guilt and shame happening in that personal basis. There are lots of reasons why not having to go into a bank to access a loan is good for young people. For one thing, what if you don't own a decent suit? What if you don't have a supportive parent to stand by your side? But one of the fallouts of money lending going digital is a sort of gamification of debt. We've started to kind of analyse the apps themselves and um, and certainly our respondents talk about um, the experience of using these apps as having those aspects. So the idea of gamification is the kind of introduction of, you know, game-like things into things that aren't games, right? So, um, you know, um, and, and in terms of the realm of consumption of, you know, things like Facebook and things like online shopping and certainly things like um, these apps... They encourage us to kind of engage with them, not necessarily as a debt service, but more in that kind of more relaxed manner, I suppose. Um, so the gamification in that sense, in terms of something like the Buy Now, Pay Later apps, um, they talk about how if you pay off the loan on time or you make a repayment on time, you know, you get a little kind of ding and a reward. And if you do it a few times in a row... What it means the next time is that, you know, you get an extra week to make the first payment. So there's kind of these rewards, in inverted commas, but they're not monetary rewards. And if in the future then you kind of miss a payment, you still get punished. But these kind of things encourage a way of engaging with this debt in a more, you know, gamified way. There's a classic example, I think, where one of our respondents was trying to access a payday loan and it was all done online and you just put the information in. And she talked about how the way that the loan was progressing and she could see it happening on like a a screen in the app felt like she was ordering a pizza. Like, you know, you can watch the pizza coming from the place now all the way to to your house. This kind of mechanism was built into the app for her to kind of view how the loan was progressing, when it was going to turn up, when she could access. So it creates these kind of everyday feelings of comfort in a way because these things um, correspond to many of the other things we use in our day-to-day lives. They don't feel necessarily like that kind of nervous having to go and meet a person to ask for money. They allow us to kind of access this stuff just like we would to buy a pizza or, um, you know, order a pair of ASICs from, you know, Rebel Sport or something. Jonathan Shapiro agrees that there is an element of gamification when it comes to apps like Afterpay. And others might use a different word. I mean, some might call it UX or user experience. You know, they've really made it seamless, easy, fun and you know, to use. So I guess that's a version of gamification. And and they and other technology companies spend a lot of time and effort perfecting the user experience, you know, making it easy, friendly, fun to use. You know, whether <laughs> whether what you're doing is the right thing is, is, is a separate debate, but they very intensely focus on making their product easy to use and encouraging you to use it as much as possible. So I think we're I think we've seen it with Afterpay and I think we are we have seen it overseas and starting to see it here beyond 
credit and debt. So we're seeing it with like online share trading. You know, people are making it very easy. You can, on, on a bus trip, you can log on to your phone, set up a trading account and buy shares of a CDA or or, 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 or Afterpay even. So, so it's interesting now that gamification is coming to financial services. And I think something that we regulators, lawmakers, politicians, everyone need to stop and think about is this lack of friction. You know, there is a lack of friction there's always been a natural friction in buying shares or getting a credit card that slows you down and makes you consider things, but that friction has been reduced to nothing. Um, the issue is it's very hard to tell an entrepreneur or a, you know or someone at CBA or anywhere that's trying to perfect their product to make it clunkier, slower, and less user-friendly. So I don't know where we land on this, but there is a point, and I think we're reaching it or have crossed where a lack of friction, natural friction, is... Maybe changing the behavior of of users potentially to their detriment. Um, I mean, how we deal with that, I don't know. The logical answer, it would seem, is better regulation. There was a lot of fear that Afterpay would get kind of kneecapped by regulation, that ASIC and government would say, look, this is lending, this is credit, you need to now do credit checks, which would have really stopped them in their tracks and slowed their growth. But they somehow got away with it. The users were very positive of it. You know, the, the merchants were the ones paying for it, but the users loved it. So it was very hard for anyone to, to a regulator or a politician to spoil the party. So whether it's good or bad for society, I don't know. I mean, look, like I gave the example of credit cards. Credit cards, I think, are not great products at all. I think they do get a lot of people into trouble that could easily have been avoided, you know, just through neglecting to pay something or there's lots of ways a credit card can trap you and harm you. Um, so as an alternative to credit cards, I would say it's hard to be too critical of Afterpay. Let's circle back to Steve's finding about young people's attitudes of good debt and bad debt. Where did those attitudes come from? There's a catch-22 that's going on here in a way. So just on, on that kind of moralisation of debt, you know, there was we had very different attitudes. You know, you know, some people were very wary of using buy now, pay later or, or refused to. They saw it as a risk. Others kind of were using it and using it, but they were also very well aware aware of the risks, you know. They weren't just kind of using these things blindly. Um, so I just really want to point that out because it's really easy to paint, paint young people as a cultural dupe or, or being irresponsible here. But really, these things are working exactly how they're intended to, right? Um, so in terms of that, you know, internal, external relations of kind of pressure and, and, and what to do about these things, I mean, in a world where young people find it almost impossible to find a good paying job unless you do like, you know, four, ten years of study or whatever, um, you know, real wages have stagnated, the labour market has been thoroughly made a precariat and um, there's underemployment and casualization and all this kind of stuff. There's, most young people don't have a whole bunch of money just to be spending on day-to-day life and having fun. But, like, if you look everywhere else or in terms of our advertising and all this kind of stuff, you know, that's, that's what life is, right? A good life is being a good consumer and having fun through those products and experiences. So to be able to kind of do that stuff, you know, these, it's inevitable that these kind of things are going to, be, going to be used. So I think what's happening here is exactly how this industry is set up and our banking industry and the buy now, pay later industry and all the lack of regulation around it. Um, it's working exactly how everyone wants it to, right? People are consuming, they're going into debt. And once you're into debt, you kind of, 
trapped in that kind of system of being having to chase more work to pay it, pay it back off. It's a kind of perfect working subject in a way. Thanks for listening to Seriously Social. I'm Ginger Gorman. If you're enjoying the podcast, one of the best ways to support us is to subscribe. And if you listen through Apple Podcasts, drop a review in there for us as well. We love reading them and it helps other people find us. Seriously Social is produced by Kim Lester, engineered by Mark Gargledonk, aka Baldy, and executive produced by Sue White and Bonnie Johnson. It's an initiative of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. Next time, what gives you hope? It's easy to feel despondent when times are tough, but what makes you feel hopeful instead? See you next time. Thank you.